Chapter 6 of Company H by Sam R. Watkins. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Murfreesboro We came from Knoxville to Chattanooga and seemed destined to make a permanent stay here. We remained several months, but soon we were on the tramp again. From Chattanooga, Bragg's army went to Murfreesboro. The Federal Army was concentrating at Nashville. There was no rest for the weary. Marches and battles were the order of the day. Our army stopped at Murfreesboro. Our advanced outpost was established at Laverne. From time to time different regiments were sent forward to do picket duty. I was on picket at the time the advance was made by Rosecrans. At the time mentioned I was standing about two hundred yards off the road, the main body of the pickets being on the Nashville and Murfreesboro turnpike, and commanded by Lieutenant Hardy Murphy of the Rutherford Rifles. I had orders to allow no one to pass. In fact, no one was expected to pass at this point, but while standing at my post a horseman rode up behind me. I halted him and told him to go down to the main picket on the road and pass, but he seemed so smiling that I thought he knew me, or had a good joke to tell me. He advanced up and, pulling a piece of paper out of his pocket, handed it to me to read. It was an order from General Leonidas Polk to allow the bearer to pass. I read it, and looked up to hand it back to him, when I discovered that he had a pistol cocked and leveled in my face, and says he, Drop that gun, you are my prisoner. I saw there was no use in fooling about it. I knew if I resisted he would shoot me, and I thought then he was about to perform that detestable operation. I dropped the gun. I did not wish to spend my winter in a northern prison, and what was worse, I would be called a deserter from my post of duty. The Yankee picket lines were not a half mile off. I was perfectly willing to let the spy go on his way, rejoicing, for such he was, but he wanted to capture a rebel. And I had made up my mind to think likewise. There I was, a prisoner sure, and no mistake about it. His pistol was leveled, and I was ordered to march. I was afraid to halloo to the relief, and you may be sure I was in a bad fix. Finally, says I, let's play quits. I think you are a soldier. You look like a gentleman. I am a vidette. You know the responsibility resting on me. You go your way and leave me here. Is it a bargain? Says he, I would not trust a secesh on his word, oath, or bond. March, I say. I soon found out that he had caught sight of the relief on the road and was afraid to shoot. I quickly made up my mind. My gun was at my feet, and one step would get it. I made a quick glance over my shoulder and grabbed at my gun. He divined my motive and fired. The ball missed its aim. He put spurs to his horse, but I pulled down on him and almost tore the fore shoulder of his horse entirely off. But I did not capture the spy, though I captured the horse, bridle, and saddle. Major Allen of the 27th Tennessee Regiment took the saddle and bridle and gave me the blanket. I remember the blanket had the picture of a big lion on it, and it was almost new. When we fell back as the Yankee sharpshooters advanced, we left the poor old horse nipping the short, dry grass. I saw a Yankee skirmisher run up and grab the horse and give a whoop, as if he had captured a rebel horse. But they continued to advance upon us, we firing and retreating slowly. We had several pretty sharp brushes with them that day. I remember that they had to cross an open field in our front, and we were lying behind a fence, and as they advanced we kept up firing, and would run them back every time, until they brought up a regiment that whooped and yelled and charged our skirmish line, and then we fell back again. 
I think we must have killed a good many in the old field, because we were firing all the time at the solid line as they advanced upon us. Battle of Murfreesboro The next day the Yankees were found out to be advancing. Soon they came in sight of our picket. We kept falling back and firing all day, and were relieved by another regiment about dark. We rejoined our regiment. Line of battle was formed on the north bank of Stones River, on the Yankee side. Bad generalship, I thought. It was Christmas. John Barleycorn was general-in-chief. Our generals and colonels and captains had kissed John a little too often. They couldn't see straight. It was said to be Buckeye whiskey. They couldn't tell our own men from Yankees. The private could, but he was no general, you see. But here they were, the Yankees. A battle had to be fought. We were ordered forward. I was on the skirmish line. We marched plumb into the Yankee lines with their flags flying. I called Lieutenant Colonel Frierson's attention to the Yankees, and he remarked, Well, I don't know whether they are Yankees or not, but if they are, they will come out of there mighty quick. The Yankees marched over the hill out of sight. We were ordered forward to the attack. We were right upon the Yankee line on the Wilkerson turnpike. The Yankees were shooting our men down by scores. A universal cry was raised. You are firing on your own men. Cease firing. Cease firing. I hallooed. In fact, the, the whole skirmish line hallooed and kept on telling them that they were Yankees and to shoot. But the order was to cease firing. You are firing on your own men. Captain James of Cheatham's staff was sent forward and killed in his own yard. We were not twenty yards off from the Yankees, and they were pouring the hot shot and shells right into our ranks, and every man was yelling at the top of his voice, Cease firing! You are firing on your own men! Cease firing! You are firing on your own men! Oakley, color-bearer of the 4th Tennessee Regiment, ran right up in the midst of the Yankee line with his colors, begging his men to follow. I hallooed until I was hoarse. They are Yankees! They are Yankees! Shoot! They are Yankees! The crest occupied by the Yankees was belching loud with fire and smoke, and the rebels were falling like leaves of autumn in a hurricane. The leaden hailstorm swept them off the field. They fell back and reformed. General Cheatham came up and advanced. I did not fall back, but continued to load and shoot, until a fragment of a shell struck me on the arm, and then a mini-ball passed through the same, paralyzing my arm and wounding and disabling me. General Cheatham, all the time, was calling on the men to go forward, saying, Come on, boys, and follow me. The impression that General Frank Cheatham made upon my mind, leading the charge on the Wilkerson Turnpike, I will never forget. I saw either victory or death written on his face. When I saw him leading our brigade, though I was wounded at the time, I felt sorry for him. He seemed so earnest and concerned. And as he was passing me, I said, Well, General, if you are determined to die, I'll die with you. We were at that time at least a hundred yards in advance of the brigade, Cheatham all the time calling upon the men to come on. He was leading the charge in person. Then it was I saw the power of one man, born to command, over a multitude of men then almost routed and demoralized. I saw and felt that he was not fighting for glory, but that he was fighting for his country because he loved that country and he was willing to give his life for his country and the success of our cause. He deserves a wreath of immortality and a warm place in every Southern's heart for his brave and glorious example on that bloody battlefield of Murfreesboro. Yes, his history will ever shine in beauty and grandeur as a name upon the brightest in all the galaxy of leaders in the history of our cause. 
Now another fact I will state, and that is when the private soldier was ordered to charge and capture the twelve pieces of artillery, heavily supported by infantry, Maney's brigade raised a whoop and yell, and swooped down on those Yankees like a whirligust of woodpeckers in a hailstorm, paying the blue-coated rascals back with compound interest. For when they did come, every man's gun was loaded, and they marched upon the blazing crest in solid file, and when they did fire there was a sudden lull in the storm of battle, because the Yankees were nearly all killed. I cannot remember now of ever seeing more dead men and horses and captured cannon all jumbled together than that scene of blood and carnage and battle on the Wilkerson Turnpike. The ground was literally covered with bluecoats dead, and if I remember correctly, there were eighty dead horses. By this time our command had reformed and charged the blazing crest. The spectacle was grand. With cheers and shouts they charged up the hill, shooting down and bayoneting the flying cannoneers, General Cheatham, Colonel Field, and Joe Lee cutting and slashing with their swords. The victory was complete. The whole left wing of the Federal Army was driven back five miles from their original position. Their dead and wounded were in our lines, and we had captured many pieces of artillery, small arms, and prisoners. When I was wounded, the shot and shell that struck me knocked me winding. I said, Oh, oh, I'm wounded! And at the same time I grabbed my arm. I thought it had been torn from my shoulder. The brigade had fallen back about two hundred yards when General Cheatham's presence reassured them, and they soon were in line and ready to follow so brave and gallant a leader, and had that order of cease firing you were firing on your own men not been given, Maney's brigade would have had the honor of capturing eighteen pieces of artillery and ten thousand prisoners. This I do know to be a fact. As I went back to the field hospital, I overtook another man walking along. I do not know to what regiment he belonged, but I remember at first noticing that his left arm was entirely gone. His face was as white as a sheet. The breast and sleeve of his coat had been torn away, and I could see the frazzled end of his shirt-sleeve which appeared to be sucked into the wound. I looked at it pretty close, and I said, Great God! for I could see his heart throb and the respiration of his lungs. I was filled with wonder and horror at the sight. He was walking along, when all at once he dropped down and died without a struggle or a groan. I could tell of hundreds of such incidents of the battlefield, but tell only this one, because I remember it so distinctly. Robbing a Dead Yankee In passing over the battlefield I came across a dead Yankee colonel. He had on the finest clothes I ever saw, a red sash and fine sword. I particularly noticed his boots. I needed them, and had made up my mind to wear them out for him. But I could not bear the thought of wearing dead men's shoes. I took hold of the foot and raised it up, and made one trial at the boot to get it off. I happened to look up, and the colonel had his eyes wide open and seemed to be looking at me. He was stone dead, but I dropped that foot quick. It was my first and last attempt to rob a dead Yankee. After the battle was over at Murfreesboro, that night John Tucker and myself thought that we would investigate the contents of a fine brick mansion at our immediate front, but between our lines and the Yankees, and even in advance of our videttes. Before we arrived at the house we saw a body of Yankees approaching, and as we started to run back they fired upon us. Our pickets had run in and reported a night attack. We ran forward, expecting that our men would recognize us, but they opened fire upon us. I never was as bad scared in all my whole life, 
and if any poor devil ever prayed with fervency and true piety, I did it on that occasion. I thought, I am between two fires. I do not think that a flounder or pancake was half as flat as I was that night. Yea, it might be called in music, low flat. End of chapter 6